0: Hello and welcome to what the truck. I'm Dooner here with Michael Vincent, the dude. Peace and love. A little oh. quiet in the open. Didn't really feel like dancing. Yeah, a little tired physically and emotionally. I was up all night, man. You know, when wars happen or the thought of war happens, we you, you hear about it on TV, right? Yeah. I, I remember you do. growing up and. Um, When I was in seventh grade, the Gulf War was going on. And I remember in, like, homeroom, we would have to watch it on TV. Yeah, But you're sort of removed. There's the the CNN or the news correspondent there, and you see the bombs shelling on the background. And and still to this day, the news is kind of like that. But what's radically changed the face of war and the perception of war is social media. I mean, you and I are dads, man. There were were three videos online that really, really sent this home, what is happening over in the Ukraine. Yeah, I
1: agree. I, that's what I was watching and up all night watching was the social media content that was happening. I had other news sites up that were live, but the real news and the real meat of it and the effect, that the impact of what is going on there came from from live feeds that were coming from uh, you know Twitter and yeah. so let's, on. Let's let's
0: take a look just, at a couple of these tweets and you'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah, this This one, this, this this one, one right killing, here dude. is... Uh, this. this. So what happened in, in Ukraine is they declared yesterday that men between the ages of 18 and 60 couldn't leave the country, women and children obviously leaving. These I, I'm not playing the video here. These videos like were hard. If you want to see the videos, go out and check them out for yourself. And yeah. it's not like it's bloody or violent or something. It's no. just a father and his daughter and the, the tears there. And as someone with a 5- and 7-year-old, like, that like is the, the biggest nightmare. That is... The horror of war. We've all seen the rubble before. We've all seen the bombs. But actually seeing families destroyed and the impact of that, it's horrible.
1: It's absolutely horrible. Those videos, I caution you. If you, if you haven't seen them and you're going to go look, it, it will ruin your day.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, this it one here. This one, is, is, this one, he's his daughter on the bus. They're drawing the heart and they're putting their, their palms against the thing. It is it's devastating. Yeah, Dooner, you know, this, this is this is a hill I would
1: die on. Yeah. And not see this happen.
0: I mean, the first one I saw this day, you're actually looking at the picture here. This is this is someone they took the video oh, from inside their house. This isn't far removed. This is right from inside the house, the battlefield, which is someone's residential neighborhood. And there's a fighter jet that's flying extremely low right over there. And you can see it launch missiles. But the thing that makes it horrific is you don't see anyone get blown up. What no. you do see is you hear the camera go down and you hear a child scream. And you see the family dog in there. Yeah. And if you look around your house and you're seeing something like that, and you see your family dog and you see your wife and everything... You, you realize that life can change radically and radically fast.
1: Just like that. It brings it all home. This is totally different than when I grew up during the Cold War and all that kind of stuff where there was that constant threat. This brings it real.
0: It does bring it real. And it's crazy as a Cold War kid that there's there's even the prospect or the specter of support for Putin in the United States. There's an enemy out there, and they're doing something that is absolutely wrong to the people of the Ukraine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can't believe that there's a shred of support for any of this stuff. And as you and I were discussing this earlier in the locker room, um, you know, how absolutely horrific and and just ignorant this is. It's just plain stupid. It really is. Uh, To have this happen, the silver lining maybe is the world being shocked into we can't do this anymore. This is just not worth it, no matter what it
0: is. Well, you remember there was the the, the which war was it a, uh, a while ago it was like shock and awe right and then yeah, on the yeah, yeah. news you see all oh, like the shells coming down and yeah. that was a shock and awe For me the, the shock and awe is just these these, these videos of people right there on the street
1: yeah, absolutely this is this is uh, uh, hopefully I mean the the tears and the destruction of these families like you you pointed out, which is so heart-wrenching and hits home will hit home to the rest of the world and, and just say this, this, enough.
0: Enough. We'll talk a little bit about the impacts of that later in the show. They obviously pale in comparison to... The, the human casualties and the capital and just the gravity of this situation, but we'll talk about what we know and how it will impact freight. But also on the show, it's really good. We're going to get some insight on what's happening on seaports as well as what's happening up in spaceports as we have uh, the Florida Harbor Pilots Association on today yeah. as well as NASA. Before we get to all that, let's tip the band. Search Transportation thinks non-competes are stupid. Non-competes chase away good talent and stop talented people from joining the supply chain industry. Tear up your non-compete. It's non-enforceable. Email jobs at surgetransportation.com and do what?
1: Hey, open your own office tomorrow. Tomorrow.
0: Well, Monday. Take Saturday off. So those of you not familiar, this is what the Florida Harbor Pilots Association is. One mistake is all it
1: takes. You can't afford to make a mistake in this profession. It could be a catastrophe here you have to demonstrate your ability we lost pilots boarding or disembarking the seas were about 10 to 12 feet and the whole deal starts
2: going back it was a very risky position for us to be in
0: as part of our job we put our personal safety on the line this job is not for everybody Since 1868, the Florida Harbor pilots have played a vital role in the day-to-day movement of commerce. Each year, pilots are responsible for the safe and efficient movement of $50 billion in Florida imports and exports, 120 million tons of cargo, 10 million passengers, and 41,600 ships. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, through storms, high seas, and the dead of night. The 100 men and women that make up Florida's Harbor Pilots enable the state's life-giving essentials to pass safely through its waterways, all at no cost to residents. So on Wednesday, we were able to catch up after the show with Laura DeBella. She's the executive director at the Florida Harbor Pilots Association. Here's a conversation we had with her. It was really great. Can you guys play it? Talk about some history, some lineage, Michael Vincent. Founded in 1868, the Florida Harbor Pilots Association is comprised of 11 member associations that represent nearly 100 highly skilled and highly trained harbor pilots that serve each of Florida's 14 deep water ports. I bet you didn't even know Florida had 14 deep water ports.
1: I was, you know, I I operated out of Port of Miami and out of uh, um, uh, Riviera Beach with tropical shipping for uh, a while, and I did not know that there were 14 deep water ports. guess like six well
0: let's get introduced to that <laughs> world we have an amazing guest that can speak to it it's laura de she's the executive director at the florida harbor pilots association laura thanks for joining us
2: that's my pleasure thank you for having me
0: you look I'm like you're in, you look like you're in florida
2: I am in Florida. I'm actually in Tampa today. Forgive me. I'm in a hotel room, uh, so you can uh, my my background. But I uh, I was here for an event actually last night. So and I'll, I'll be leaving shortly. And I'll be headed to South Florida, uh, actually Fort Lauderdale next. So I'm kind of making my rounds around the state. As we yeah, speak.
0: I saw I saw some pictures there actually on your profile. You were at a maritime industry awards last, it sounded uh, really cool. Any any takeaways from it? Was it a good time?
2: Oh, it was great! It was great. Uh, I had the uh, the honor and privilege to deliver the keynote last night, um, and we had uh, just such a star-studded audience. You know, from the admiral for district for U.S. Coast Guard District Seven uh, was there, Rear Admiral um, McPherson, and then also uh, the captain of the port here for Sector Saint Pete. Um, uh matthew thompson captain thompson so it was just uh in addition to 98 others so it was a completely sold out event um you know just the the biggest champions of the maritime world and uh and i was just thrilled to be there and and so honored to speak to them so it was great
1: yeah very cool laura so before we get into how pilots do this right what harbor pilots do how did you get into this
2: uh, kind of a long story, um, but I'll I'll abridge it for you to cool. uh, to keep things keep keep things interesting. Um my background is in, in economic development, actually. So um I was an economic development director for a county here in Florida, Nassau County. Uh, and that particular county has a port in it. Uh, it was the port of Fernandina. And uh, for two and a half uh, I was there for five years altogether, and two and a half years into the five, uh, the port director had resigned. And, uh, instead of, um, hiring someone else, I I was asked to take on the role of a port director in addition to the economic development director as there was a lot of synergies. Um, and, uh, and you know, it just, it just fit actually at the time for everything that we were doing. So it was, that is how I embarked on my so-called maritime career. And that's how I met a lot of the Harbor pilots and they had recruited me from there. So, Very Laura, good. what been, are
0: what are you and the team doing over in the ports over there? Tell us a little bit about how this all works. How does your uh, how does your association work?
2: Well, we are responsible. The Florida Harbor Pilots Association. We are responsible for uh, just everything that is related to you know Florida's seaports and and the effects of the harbor pilots and what we can do to strengthen and continue to further our mission. Uh, you know, in in uh, in serving the community in every which way purpose, you know, and purpose, uh, from, you know, the cargo fuel to tourism, as you can see with the cruise ships that you have, uh, showing now. So it is, uh, we, are responsible for everything on the high level side governance, uh, on the state, but our Harbor pilots at our 11 different stations across the state are responsible for, uh, bringing those vessels in and out. It is, a uh, Required by state law that any vessel, foreign flag vessel or even U.S. flag vessel over seven feet of draft uh, is mandated by law to bring in a um, to have a state licensed harbor pilot on board. So and that is really only for the safety and security of uh, the state. So to ensure that our waterways are protected and by by local expertise and get uh, get those ships in and out in the most efficient way possible.
0: Wow. Wow. What is what are we looking at here? I like this video. I remember this video. This video was, yeah, was viral cool. on like TikTok and, and yeah. LinkedIn. What's happening here? Yeah.
2: That was one of our massive container ships. Uh, you know, that was just a couple months ago, actually. So um, one of our big container ships that was coming into Port Miami, um, Port Miami is seen probably Port Miami and Port Everglades, uh, in Jack's, Jack's Port right behind that, um, are seeing the largest container vessels that this state has ever seen. We are breaking records. Um, nearly monthly, as far as the size of these vessels are concerned. Um, I think we're topping off at 13,000 containers, uh, right now, um, as far as that goes. So what you saw there was one of them, uh, one of the, one of our mega ships coming in. That is
0: very cool. Why do those tugboats, I've always wondered, why do the tugboats spray the water like that?
2: (laughs) That's celebration. That's their water cannon. So that right there, this video that you're showing, that was the first cruise ship to sail after the no sale order was lifted. And, yeah. and that was a big deal for us here in Florida. You know, if, if you all recall, um, no cruise ships were sailing at all in the United States and you know, and beyond uh, for over 15 months. So it was a big deal when the first one set sail. And it happened to be here in Florida at Port Everglades. So what you were seeing was the celebration happening there. Wow! So wow, that was wow. me I took that video. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. We're seeing a lot of interesting stuff. Like r- right here there's so they're getting this ladder out here. What's going on here? They the the harbor pilot is boarding the boat. Is that what's going on?
2: The uh, when well, you see the pilot boat operator is uh, is starting his approach to pick up the pilot. The pilot is actually on board, so he's the one taking the video. That wow. is the the other side of what's going on, and that's the the pilot boat operator was taking that video from the outside there. So um, he's uh, the weather was a bit rough that day, and uh, I was able to get two perspectives. You know, one from the vessel and one from the pilot boat, um, and that that really gained a lot of attention. And also kind of showed, you know, just how treacherous conditions can be. Now, granted, you know, a little bit more needed to be done as far as getting the ship on the lee side to, you know, have calmer waters. But, um, but yeah, not every day is sunshine and rainbows. And that, that was the purpose of, of posting that.
0: Yeah, I think some people don't realize this, that, that the ports, they there's not just container ships, it's also yeah. cruise ships. Now, there's a video right here, can we throw this video up? Oh, we're seeing a cruise ship with all these hearts on it, it's coming into the port, and it makes a really interesting maneuver here, you'll notice. Instead of just turning right into the port, it I goes, and it right? does It does a loop-de-loop. Is that is that someone just hot-dogging, or are they just celebrating, or are they giving everyone a 360 <laughs> view of downtown Miami? Hot-dogging <laughs> no, is what no,
2: it no. is. So that was Virgin Voyages. They just opened their new terminal at Port Miami, uh, and that they had set sail that evening. And obviously, it was it was Valentine's Day weekend, um, and I think that was the 13th, like day before Valentine's Day. Uh, so they were all hearted up, and and uh, the way the that terminal situated, and the way the the length of that vessel. Um, I actually asked our harbor pilots specifically, you know, to answer this question. Um, They're not able to just turn right, you know, turn starboard, so they actually... Have to come out and make a left, so sort of turn turn port and do a complete, you know, beyond one eighty to exit the port. So that's what you're seeing there. But it sure makes for a nice show, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, well, a- yeah it, it really does. It's very cool. Well, I mean, school. Here's the and the reason you have to ask is I didn't real like when she said that the to- the tugboats were just showboating when they were doing that, like yeah. the celebration cans. Yeah. I always thought those had like some sort of purpose. I don't know if they were. I, I didn't know exactly. Well, it was, the, so.
1: Yeah, well, the, yeah, that's true.
0: Well, if I had a cannon on my boat like that, I'd shoot all the time. I, oh yeah. I'd be blasting people yeah. on deck. Laura, some hope. of the video,
1: one of the videos, I was
2: <laughs> work. they do plenty of hard work, but in that, in those cases with the water cannons, they're just there for celebration.
0: Yeah. well, you, <laughs> We'll take your word for it. <laughs> getting on, even getting on a, on a container ship, it looks like a mini action movie. I was watching some of your videos here. And I think we, we have one, if we can roll that of, um, this yeah, guy right here is, tri- is climbing up on the boat and you just throw down, like it. Seafaring is interesting because seafaring has been around for a long time, but it's almost like it hasn't changed in, in, uh, like hundreds of years because you're still throwing down like a rope ladder and you got to climb it down from another boat all the way up the, the side of the vessel. Have you ever climbed up the side of a boat?
2: Absolutely. I've, I've done it many times. In fact, that was my my first 90-day assignment when, uh, when I was hired by the pilots was to ride a ship at every port. So I've uh, I've done my share of climbing that ladder and it is, it is as scary as it looks, um, but it is also... Um, uh you're full of adrenaline when when you're done with it it's great it's, yes. it's amazing
1: uh, it looks it looks incredibly dangerous to do no
2: it is it it is and and make i definitely don't want to make light of it um you know it is not uncommon for injuries to occur uh and and unfortunately we have lost uh we have lost pilots around the nation um because of incidents that have, have occurred on as they're climbing, you know, on or off of the ladder, embarking or disembarking from the ship. So it is an extremely dangerous uh, profession uh, for a variety of reasons. But, yeah, definitely that that makes makes it uh, makes it so.
0: What's the like so what's the protocol like were someone to fall off the rope ladder?
2: Well, it, it depends on the boarding arrangement, uh, truthfully. So um, you'll see in some of the videos, and and I don't want to you know play the expert here because they, the yeah. pilots, are the expert uh, for sure. You know they're the ones that are, are trained. I, I just get to talk about them. But um, more often than not, you'll see the boat start to move away uh, as they uh, the pilots appear to be secure on the ladder. That is uh, primarily to uh, it's, I don't want to say, oftentimes they do that so that if the pilot were to fall, he would drop into the water. He or she would drop into the water. We do have some female pilots, um, as opposed to falling on the boat, because they could potentially injure themselves more if they fell on the pilot boat. Yeah. Um, it's not always the case. Uh, sometimes you look at it the other way. You know, I've, I've heard arguments for both sides, but that's, uh, that's generally how it is, it is done. How, unbelievable
0: how, how have uh, things been how how have things been for the harbor pilots throughout the covid and congestion in these past two years I know like you also have cruise ships there so on one end there can there can be vessel congestion on the other end you have the cruise ships that were shut down for a while how did that impact the ports and the waterways over in Florida
2: it, it was uh it was chaotic I mean it was very very hard uh we um we have the top three cruise ports here in Florida. So when the cruise shutdown occurred uh, and was prolonged for 15 months, uh, that was uh, disastrous to our pilot stations across the state because few realize that the service that our harbor pilots provide uh, is actually at no cost to the taxpayer. So all of the income that our pilots uh, receive is based on their ship handles and nothing more. So essentially, call it a commission off of each ship handle. So take away, you know, a huge amount of vessel activity at our seaports and. We, we, our pilot stations were very much in the red uh mm. and for a very very long time but they still had a job to do so i uh i would be lying if i didn't tell you that we were basically stood up by disaster loans for a while uh you know here to uh to ensure that our ports remained open it was uh it, it was a very stressful time for them but i uh I'm happy to say we got through it and, uh, you know, now cruise ships are sailing again and, and we're ramping up to to a place that we were before. But, you know, then then here comes container getting and the supply chain crisis and, you know, this onslaught of activity, which, of course, is not a bad thing. But now we're seeing, like I had said before, some of the biggest container ships that our ports have ever seen. And we're dealing with infrastructure that has not been improved upon in in any dramatic way in, say, maybe 50 years. So, you know, we're and this is not just our problem. And here in Florida, it's a a universally nationwide problem. Um, uh, We need a we need a whole lot of help on the infrastructure side to uh, to basically get in the game and stay competitive uh, versus, you know, the other nations.
0: What would, uh, what would the money be used for? Like, where, where do you think would be most beneficial to help out at least the ports from, from your purview? Uh,
2: it, w- it would, depend on the port. Uh, you know, really there's, there's, uh, you got to remember, you know, these, these ports were, were, um, designed and, 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 you know, kind of considered, Long ago, before developments grew around them, uh, you know, power lines and, and such, yeah. you know, were, were kind of put in place. So it would really depend on the port. Um, one of the biggest infrastructure improvements that uh, would help our ports, you know, and any others uh, really is a deepening uh, deepening the channels to allow uh, for those bigger ships, uh, and then from there, you would you know handle the the berths and and whatever uh, other infrastructure improvements you can make in the port. But if you can't make those channels deeper, then you know you're somewhat limited in what you do as you progress into port property.
1: So, so Laura, how, how does, what does it take to become a harbor pilot? What is the training like? How does one become a, a harbor pilot?
2: It's uh, it's quite extensive. Uh, Florida is, uh, is very strict in what it, uh, pilot handled differently in every port. Uh, I'm sorry, in every state, um, there's 24 states that have uh, uh, pilotage and we're obviously one of them. Um, it is extremely competitive. Uh, we require, uh, you know, all in all about once all the testing, um, the training is done, uh, it probably ends up about being 15 years or so of, uh, of sea time. Uh, we need an unlimited master's license uh, that is required uh, before you can even take the test, be considered to take the test. And then once you take the test uh, to be a Florida Harbor pilot, you have to score the highest for that port. So, um so you we have multiple individuals uh you know very highly qualified that will test and test and test for years for different ports and and just simply get beat out by other people i mean so it is it's not it's not a joke to to get to get a, a um, to even have that luxury to be selected and then once you're selected you go you undergo training for years two to three years in depending on the port. Um, and then you will finally you'll you start as a deputy and then you move your way up, you know, through the deputy program. And then finally, you uh, if you make it, you will become a state licensed Florida Harbor pilot. So it's pretty expensive. About well, two decades. Let's go ahead
1: and say two decades of your life. Wow! Like, i Just, just scratch that one off my list. Job? Yeah, to forget <laughs> it. I don't have time. I need to play. Just the ignore that application I sent you <laughs> well, yeah, earlier. American truck simulator. They
0: <laughs> need to make like American <laughs> oh, harbor pilot simulator. Like, like you know, like American truck simulator. Oh yeah. Where yeah. You can yeah. maneuver the boats in oh, cool. yourself. You know, it's really interesting though. You see, like when you when you mentioned the money, the infrastructure money, um, and you think about the Panama Canal, right? The 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 deepening of it. And allowing much larger vessels to go through—that's put a lot of strain on East Coast ports to to keep base like uh, like Boston. They had to do that big drive. They had to get yeah. the big cranes up and everything. All the ports. But what about the pilots themselves? What kind of issues are are on their docket this year? What do pilots want to make their lives better?
2: Well, uh, it, speaking from you know from obviously my perspective, you know, a because of the the way we are structured and, and, and how we are funded uh, and, and really what has happened over the past two years, you know, basically being in the red for, for many of our our pilot stations, um, you know, that doesn't improvements or or maintenance, if you will, has not, we we couldn't stop it because they had to remain uh, on the watch the entire Mm -hmm. time. So the biggest capital spend for, Pilots, uh, you know, both here in Florida, you know, and beyond, is the vessel, the pilot boats. Those are serious boats. They're not pleasure craft. Um, they definitely uh, uh, have a, a, high cost to them, depending on, um, you know, what, what type of vessel is needed. So it is, uh, and they're very hard to maintain. Anybody that owns a boat can, can absolutely agree sure. with me when I say that just, you know, a boat is, is a very, very expensive thing to have and they have multiple boats. So for it's, it's, um, that would be something that would be extremely helpful if we were ever, and that's what I mainly do, uh, as part of my job is to try to, um, try to find grants and, and try to assist them with any, tor- any sort of grant opportunities to help offset those massive capital expenditures, um, because that's something that will, it will show an ROI. So if I can help them, uh, you know, get some sort of rebate, you know, we can show how that, that those grant funds will show, will return uh, on that investment, you know, over the length of 30 plus years, which is how long they hold on to those vessels.
0: I think I have one last question. I'm just kind of curious, especially after seeing that, that that tugboat shoot its things. How powerful are those? Are they like little bulldogs? Because you see them hitting steamship lines. And I was like, what happens if one of those hit like a regular size, like a pleasure craft? Uh, would it ram it over like a giant bumper car or something? <laughs> pull right they, out of yeah, the like are they like super powered bulldozers or or how do they
2: work? The tugs? Yeah. Our, our, tugs are, our tug partners are, are wonderful, and we are not, um, uh, in, in no way are we affiliated with the tugs. We're firewalled sure. from the tugs. That is, uh, um, but we could not, our pilots could not do their jobs, uh, especially on the container ship side, uh, without our tug partners. Tugs are there uh, primarily to, um, to help steer a ship and also slow it down, uh, and also maybe pull it backwards if it has to, uh, because you know, understanding vessels only go forward, they don't go backwards. So, you know, uh, the container ships I'm, I'm speaking of here or tankers or, or whatever it may be. So you'll see the tugs alongside or in the back, and they're helping steer the vessel. And our pilots are the ones that are calling the, uh, the movements to those tugs, to the tug teams. So it is a, a very um, concerted and collaborative effort. They're, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. Wow. I love tugs. I think they're. I think they're fascinating. I'm supposed to ride on one. I haven't had a chance to yet. But I'd love Ooh. to. Ride. Oh,
0: really? I would like to pilot one. How I to get a hold to... of? A, I want to get a hold of a water can. Does it take two years? It doesn't take twenty years to be a, a tugboat pilot, does it? That, that
2: I'm not sure. <laughs> that I'm not sure. So they'll they'll argue that they're um, and and they have every right to they have every right to say that that they are they are as qualified as a harbor pilot. So there you but, go. You know, I, I, right. I do not I do not know their world, so I can't say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, Laura, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for bringing us inside the world of uh, Florida Harbor Pilots. It's really cool. People who want to support the association or just learn more, is there a website or somewhere I can send them to?
2: Yes, uh, floridapilots.com is our website. Uh, it's actually, we're, we're redoing our website right now, so it's a little bit under construction, but it's uh, it's getting revamped. Um, that's great. And uh, you can follow us on uh, on our uh well twitter twitter pretty active i got uh, on my twitter that is so and uh, of course we have our facebook page and and all we're on all social media so you can find us there
0: very cool thank you so much for your time thank you laura
2: i appreciate y'all thank you thank you keep it keep up the great work
0: thank you thanks wow what i mean what a great time with her by the way 20 years to become a harbor (sighs) pilot who knew yeah no kidding it takes and a, a master's Pilot's license,
1: I guess. What she called it. I guess I mean, so. that means you can you can basically pilot any ship, any type of ship. I
0: would Look, guess. Look, we are to work at ports. You have to be highly skilled. That's yeah. why we're talking to experts from seaports and spaceports as oh. well today. It's an exciting yeah. episode. But first, gotta tip the band again with fully furnished, state of the art repair trucks and a full array of roadside tools. You can expect the safest, fastest, and most painless response for your fleet from Love's Truck Care and Speedco. To learn more about their roadside assistance, tell them, dude. Hey, go to. Loves.com immediately after this show. Nice. Let's take a trip over to NASA and talk to Justine Richardson. She's a physical scientist for closed-loop life support systems at NASA's Ames Research Center. And I bet we'll all be a little bit smarter after this segment, Michael. I think we will. (laughs) Hi, Justine.
2: (laughs) Yep.
0: Oh, we got her on mute. Oh, Justine, can you unmute yourself? I think you may be on mute over there. We're gonna talk to her about uh, how you sustain there the life for long. Yes. There you are. Hey, Justine, thanks for coming on.
3: Hello. I love you, your show. You guys are hilarious and lively. <laughs> <laughs> well, we,
0: we awesome. appreciate that. Where is the NASA's Ames Research Center? Where are you located? Usually, when I talk to you folks, you're over in a uh, over by Kennedy.
3: Oh, we're over in uh, San, near San Francisco, about oh, about wow. four or five minutes away. Uh, we're huh? a research center. Uh we're actually near a lot of the we're right in the middle of silicon Valley, and what Market kind of Field.
0: what kind of research do you all do over there justine
3: so we do fun, uh not fundamental research but we uh do what you call a low technology development when someone has an idea we develop it in a lab and then we uh give it to the flight design people and they design it and they fly it on station so I actually work in the bioengineering branch, which is the life support branch that I worked in water recycling, air revitalization, and solid waste uh, and material development uh, for a close loop life support system.
1: Gotcha. So So, we
3: have at Ames, we also have like the wind tunnel, the arc jet, fluid mechanics lab. Uh, those areas as well. I wow. You know game what, game.
0: Justine? We we cool. uh, I remember about a year ago when we did the Mars rover. Remember, we were talking about the parachute. Oh yeah, yeah. They yeah, were yeah. testing that over. I believe it was over at your research facility.
3: That's right.
1: Yeah. Oh, when they were dropping it in, in that pool,
0: they had the big wind tunnel there. That was the oh, place with the, the giant, wind tunnel. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. 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 The splashdown yeah, one was yeah. an interesting one too. That that pool, yeah. whatever. The, that was very cool. So, how did you arrive at NASA? How did yeah. you come to to be uh, in biomedical engineering there?
3: So uh, I'm a chemical engineer. So I started working in the, uh, you know, the art jet. When they test the material, they have to kind of remove the contaminant from the air uh, before they actually vent it to the atmosphere. Uh, so you actually remove a, a chemical called a nitrous oxide component. So I worked on that system first, and then uh, after that, I went over to the life support branch, uh, bioengineering branch, and work uh, in the various life su- regenerative life support system uh, and we actually belong to a science division we have rodent research we have fruit fly wow. uh you know we have uh keepsat what are you doing with the fruit those, flies uh, yeah fruit flies they're fruit fly experiments are, are you like seeing uh, if they, you on. could
0: generate them in spe- like what what's the benefit of fruit flies what do they uh like what do they represent
3: well they have very large uh short lifespan
0: right uh, yeah and so you can do oh. those well, speaking of lifespans okay, cool. and yeah, life yeah. support,
3: what is a closed-loop system? Well, when you want to talk about closed-loop, it's not 100% closed-loop right now. Okay. Uh, we're talking about we're trying to maximize the, the use of a product uh, by recycling, repurposing, or reusing the material. So if we were to be completely independent from Earth um, and there are no resupply ships. Uh, then we have to design a regenerative system that remove uh, that regenerate 100% uh, on the planetary surface though uh, especially when we go to mars mars has about over 95% co2 or carbon dioxide uh, and then we would take that and we convert that to uh, oxygen and methane so um, for more regeneration and we 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 have to actually convert things to fuel so that we can move around, right, so that we don't have to bring them along. Um, so.
1: so there's two, so the, uh, if I'm hearing you right, once you get to the surface of Mars, this system is able to produce life-sustaining oxygen, which obviously need. But then also the methane, which is energy?
3: Yeah, methane can convert it to methane-based uh, fuel. Uh, and that that work has been done, uh, it's still going on. Well, We're trying to get that work done.
0: Wow. Interesting. So how is the oxygen and, and, and energy uh, derived from these?
3: So oxygen is actually, if you think about it, if you breathe in uh, ox- oxygen, you actually breathe out carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And here on earth, you don't notice, but the carbon dioxide, if you're in a closed room, uh, the carbon dioxide level would increase to the point where it's not healthy. So we actually, if you're in an enclosed environment, then you have to actively remove this carbon dioxide. Uh, So when you remove the carbon dioxide, uh, it generates water and methane. So then you take that water and you split it up in a process called electrolysis. Uh, And then you split up the water, you recover the oxygen. What you have left is the the hydrogen. You combine that hydrogen with the carbon dioxide that you you, uh, capture from the air, then you can convert that again back to water and back to uh, methane. So that is a really good example of uh, the start of a closed-loop system. So if you think about it, you know, the importance of why we're doing all this, if you think about it, uh, since this is what the truck show, uh, think about an 18-wheeler. I'm going to give you an image of an 18-wheeler. Now, I'm going to say, okay, you have to, you put two people in there Whatever you pack is what you have for three years. You're going to drive through the desert, live on the desert for like, you know, you, you're going to be there and then you're going to have to come back to your initial location, right? In there, you have solar panel on the roof. You can get your power from there. You have to think about what you're going to do with your waste, your urine, your fecal matter. What food are you going to pack, right? So we use a, a four, 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 you know, a number four um, rule of thumb. You can, on average, you can survive four minutes without air, four days without water, four weeks without food. And if you don't deal with the trash, if there's no no one coming up, coming to your house or your truck to pick up trash, the, the microbe is just going to proliferate and becomes a problem,
0: right? Yeah, A great so demonstration really- for this Justine is is my garage it's like just filled with Amazon boxes because <laughs> the, uh, they, they outpace my recycle bin right So it's almost like the carbon dioxide I, I can't convert enough of it and um, <laughs> get rid of it fast enough
3: <laughs> But you know you can, you can if you really are stuck in this enclosed environment like a truck uh yeah. you're gonna think twice about bringing cardboard box into that truck.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm hearing you right, the reason it isn't a hundred percent closed loop, like you said, it's like mostly closed, is the methane, right? Is, is that that has that can't stay in the loop. is that what you're saying? Or, or are you using so it for methane- that so it doesn't? I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: Right. The met- you you can't convert the methane into other using that's what the, base, the waste to base challenge is, right? Yeah. We're asking people to give more innovative idea of things that we have missed. Uh and so we, we haven't been able to get 100% uh, closure because system efficiency is just not that much. We haven't been able to recover, you know, 100% of the oxygen out of yeah, the electrolysis yeah. process. Gotcha. And you're right, the Sabatier process. The conversion rate is, uh, is low. But there are other systems out there, like the Bosch system, that converts to water and just just your carbon. And that that's a better conversion process.
0: Justine we were looking um we were looking at some stills that your team had sent us and it looked like uh, the sequel though to, the, to uh, the Martian or something let's take a look at these maybe you can tell us what exactly we're looking at that just looks like is he just this astronaut is it just surveying like land or something with a drone above their head
3: yeah I'm not familiar with that uh, picture
0: me either. let's go to the next one I then. Think I, I think that might just be a drone what what is this is, is this a space station yeah, this-
3: Yeah, this is, uh, a lot of these pictures are not, uh, of course, real. They're uh, simulated. They're artist productions of what we think it's going to look like, right? The astronaut's going to be in, there's going to be, of course, we already have drone on Mars. The drone's going to be there. Uh, So this is what it it might look like. This is what we're thinking that it might look like uh, when we actually land on the on the surface of Mars. We're going to have, probably going to have rovers, but uh, I'm not involved in the design of the planetary. So I can't comment in that.
1: Can you, can I ask you this? So Justine, when they do these things, you say, this is what we think it might look like. Mm. Is this just the artist going, Hey, this kind of looks cool. Or are they trying to incorporate actual things that you're working on to say, Oh, okay. This is might, what it would look like based on, you know, like you're working on your system there for the close loop system.
3: No, the artists, the NASA artist projections are pretty much close to what we're working on. And okay. What we're thinking, gotcha. but not definitive, right. It's not right. something, you know, those can change on a daily basis like this, you know, this is what we would like it. This is what, how it's going to look when we get there. Uh, but it's not, you know, we're still, especially for the Mars mission is about 10 years away. Um, and we're still working on some of these concepts. We're in a concept design uh, and trying to see how things are going to work on the surface. No. Now, keep in mind, it's, uh, you know going to Mars is not an easy task. <laughs>
0: it isn't. I think we have a. a <laughs> I, I think, think we have a video showing the journey. It's it's a long trip. You can play that in the background as we as we talk over this, guys. Um, but uh, the one question I had as as we talk about this journey, my last one about The Martian is what Matt Damon made in that movie. Is that similar to like a closed loop system that you are trying to create? He was trying to like generate his own water and oxygen and stuff within that little uh, spaceport thing he had.
3: Yeah, actually, that movie is a really good uh, depiction of uh, like trying to generate a life support system. You know, he's, of course, he's using, uh, you know, nuclear power and stuff as well, but some of the chemicals are, we wouldn't use, but, you know, he's trying to create oxygen and grow, you know, generate water to grow plants. It's very much the closed loop. And you can see from that movie, how, how difficult and how crucial it is to get everything just right. Right. Uh, In terms of your environment, you know, the pressure and the humidity, make sure you have enough humidity just the plant can grow. And and how critical how critical it is in terms of reliability that if you don't uh, if things fail do you have redundant system uh, do you have emergency plan which we would and we would have uh, redundant system because it's critical life support is a critical feature of being able to send human to outer planet. What what would be a yeah.
0: redundant system for like a life support system? Like if if are your oxygen you you lose that, what is your like when you're on board a spaceship you have limited uh, resources. So what are your options?
3: So you know the the other way of getting oxygen is to send up oxygen tank and and yeah, yeah, you've yeah. seen those tanks they're extremely <laughs> heavy, they're not uh, they're not feasible right on ISS on the International Space Station. For example, I'll I'll take the carbon dioxide system. Uh, We have one system in, you know, where the crew work. Then we have another system as a backup. So doing, uh, especially doing the time when you have the crew, a new crew actually comes up, uh, you have like six to eight people, you turn on the second system. So that's what the redundant system would, how it would work based on the needs, how many crew there are, based on the concentration of carbon dioxide.
1: Yeah. Justine, I, my question from a movie and it was actually reality was so from the, the Apollo missions with Gene Kranz and what they did there with the I guess it was an air scrubber is what they used. Has that what they put together there in an emergency situation? You know, failure is not an option. Did any of that technology advance and move forward from that solution they built?
3: Well, what they did was they they merely put a, you know, a, a round you know, a round filter to a square filter. And I love that movie, by the way. Yeah. Uh, And so that degree of innovativeness in an emergency, in quick thinking, that's what we we are all about, right? We do things that people say, well, you can't fit a a cylindrical, you know, port to a, a square port in like three minutes, right? But we say, yes, you can. (laughs) Right. And that's what we do. We don't do what other people do. We do what other people have not done. Yeah. Uh, And that's what makes our technology unique.
0: I know NASA doesn't say no. They say, how do we solve that problem? NASA, NASA well, picks up yeah. these, uh, these, these challenges. Like, like Matt Dan- amazing...
1: Damon said, I'm going to have to science the shit out of
0: this. Well, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> got to science the shit out of it. Well, I got to ask you something, though. <laughs> what are the current limitations, right, with the closed loop system? So what is keeping us from going to, to Mars and back? How long could you go on a spaceship for right now?
3: So right now on ISS, you can live up there for a year with resupply ship, uh, with resupply's mission to ISS. But if something goes wrong, they get on the shutter and they come back, right? And that's a shorter amount of time. For three years, we have, and we are testing it now, uh, reliability. Uh, you know, we have to bring spare parts, redundant parts. And one of the big issues is that we have to increase the efficiency of uh, regeneration so that we can close the loop as much as we possibly can. And the other thing is that food, right? How do you bring food enough for, you know, two crew, for example, for three years and how long would those food last in terms of exposure to radiation, shelf life and stuff? And all that work is being uh, addressed right now uh, in analog test sites at College. You know, Johnson Space Center. Uh, And also, you know, what if, you know, the astronaut gets tired of eating the same food? Uh, You know, how does the food taste? It's very important for a long mission that we really consider that make sure that the astronaut are happy living in their environment and they enjoy working in that. Yeah, good uh, point. Very important.
0: Especially on the food. Like, I don't know if you ever had, like, the, the astronaut ice cream from, uh, like, a, a NASA gift space store. Space dots? <laughs> yeah. Space dots? But how many times do you go and buy that? You get it once, right? Yeah. You yeah that's yeah, it's it not gets, such a great idea afterwards. afterwards. But,
1: yeah, I mean, you can go back and look at our episode last month with NASA, when we were talking about space tacos. They're growing yeah. peppers up there. And, well, yeah. they're, they're figuring out how to do and grow peppers up there, which is,
0: there you go. And then you get fruit flies. And you get fruit fly. <laughs> like it's just, <laughs> Justine. How? How? So uh, the graphic is kind of far away from me. Is it about a year to get to uh, Mars? This this video that we're seeing here is that how long we're we're looking at yeah, to take yeah, a spaceship?
3: Yeah, you, yeah. The, usually the planned mission to Mars, a uh, Mars, and then come back. Yeah, it's about three years or eight to nine hundred days. Oh wow! Yeah, because I think on the graphic come back? I've seen
1: is like 595 days to get back or something like that, right? Because wow. the 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 orbit that they launch you on it, or the, you're going to launch on is much larger than to it. Yeah, the comeback is different, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's like when you fly west coast to east coast. Or yeah, east yeah, coast yeah, west yeah. Coast. yeah. Well, yeah. one way is east coast is yeah. or east to west
1: is much longer than west to east.
0: Well, Justin, this has been really interesting. I guess I have two last questions for you. One of them is, what of this technology do you think will benefit us down here on Earth?
3: Yeah, that's an awesome question. All of the technology is going to benefit us on Earth because, you know, if you think about this, I like the term that spaceship Earth is very, very true. We, ever since I've worked on even the first system at NASA, we have always tried to minimize power, volume, mass. We, you know, we try to use very little materials uh, and we try to be as efficient as we possibly can. And, you know, here on Earth, you know we, you know, we're, our landfill. We're running out of landfill. Mm. I, I mean, there's no denial about that. Uh, our power is limited, right? Uh, you know, over here when we're in California, here where there's a heat wave going. There was a fire. We couldn't get outside, and we sometimes the power are out. We can't even turn our air conditioner
0: mm-hmm. on. And
3: mm-hmm. so, power minimizing power. If you were gonna truck material, uh, you know. You're gonna to have to minimize pack gas so you can minimize uh, mass so you can minimize uh, you know the amount of fuel that you're gonna put in your car and volume the more you reduce the volume, the more you can pack in the truck uh, or or in your house how our house is getting smaller and smaller uh by standard and so a lot of these problems uh, a lot of the water technology while we're recycling technology are uh, have already transferred over. And we work uh, very closely with vendors who do earth-based system, terrestrial-based system. And we work with universities to develop a lot of these technology for earth-based system. And, you know, the military interested in a lot of our technology as well. And we work with them. So uh, yeah, very, very, all of our technology, especially in life support.
0: Well, here's our last question then. What is your favorite space-based movie?
3: My favorite is Apollo thirteen. All right, I think I've watched it. It's a good time. one because of the fact that they they are just so you know uh, uh, adamant that they need to solve this problem. They were willing to even count the, the amount of amperage that they need to use uh, yeah. on the system to get back.
1: I, I thought she was going to say plan nine from outer space I was
3: sure
0: she was <laughs> or leprechaun in space. The fourth yeah, one. Yeah. Jason <laughs> yeah, that's X, right. or, uh,
2: yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> Justin, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, our thoughts are also with the crew up in the, uh, the ISS. We hope everything goes okay with, with the issues that are going on in the world. And I know that NASA in its own way is, uh, is a little bit a part of that as well. So we appreciate your time today and uh, God bless you and the team over at NASA.
3: Thank you very much. You guys are awesome.
0: Thank, Thank you. you. Have Peace. a great weekend. Right. Take care. NASA people are the best, man. They're, they're very cool. You like
1: they, they all love their job, you could tell.
0: Yeah, they're not like a bunch of socially awkward people with pocket protectors either. Like no, they're they're <laughs> really, really just into like solving problems in the science and all that stuff and they're always right. like so giving with their information and I think that they're well aware too that um, they can't talk necessarily to to us the same way they talk to their colleagues. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, you got to make it so we can understand it.
1: Yeah, you've got to dumb it down for people. Yeah,
0: that's why like we can only talk through like analogies from the Martian.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Apollo 13, which is probably yes. as deep as we get.
0: Or Plan 9. But Andrew Phillips. <laughs> Andrew Phillips is very Killer driver climbs. here. Love FreightWaves, part of the Express family. This is real news and, inf- and information analysis, and I love it. Keep up the real news. We love you, too, Andrew Phillips. Thank you so much for right on, brother. the kind words right, right, on. right there. All right, let's wrap things up. We're, uh, we're not going to do good news, bad news today. Instead, we're going to go on just to a couple of headlines around here that right on. sum up a little bit of what's going on in the world. Mm. The first one here is from, um, by the way, Jason X. One of the best kills in Jason X is he takes uh, he takes one of the people on the space station. He, he dips them in uh, liquid nitrogen. Yes. Do you remember that one? He smashes the face on the table. <laughs> yes. That was actually good. That was a one good thing.
1: I did that with a banana once. You, oh, really? <laughs> Drove right. a nail
0: after it. Well, anyways, here it is. Uh, ICS, they say, do not let Ukraine and Russian seafarers become collateral damage. Take a look at the waters here, too, around uh, the Black Sea. The International Chamber of Shipping issued a warning Thursday morning of the human capital component of this blockage. Ukraine and Russian seafarers are now locked out. According to the ICS and BIMCO seafarer workers' report, 10.5% of the global seafarers are Russian and 4% are Ukrainian. This is reporting from the great Lori Ann Larocco. She, uh... Let's see here. She's got a quote from someone, too. Who is this? She was speaking to Guy Guy Platton. He's the Secretary General of the ICS. He said, the safety of our seafarers is our absolute priority. We call on all parties to ensure that seafarers do not become the collateral damage in any actions that governments or others may take. Seafarers have been the forefront of keeping trade flowing through the pandemic, and we hope that all parties will continue to facilitate free passage of goods. And these key workers at this time, they tell American shipper that in order to maintain an unfettered trade, seafarers must be able to have crew changes freely across the world. ICS warns that flight cancellations in the region, it's going to make this become increasingly difficult. The ability to pay fares has been a challenge as well.
1: Yeah, because of the banking system yes. and, the, and the things that are going on there, the, the sanctions that are, could go on there. And Jasper Bull of uh, Bull Positions tells American Shipper, the timing of this invasion needs to be put into some context here. This is the low season for ag exports coming out of Ukraine and Russia, uh, Bull said. If this invasion happened in July or August when exports are at their peak, this would be a completely different story and much more dire consequences. At this time, Bull told American Shipper the world can fill the Ukraine bucket of corn, wheat, and barley. The EU, U.S., and Argentina. Argentina uh, uh, can export if the Ukraine ports continue to be uh, inoperable for four to six months. The commodities will just cost more because they'll be have to travel further distances. Yeah. Uh, some interesting things in there. The top five Russia exports are crude, petroleum, uh, refined petroleum, petroleum gas, coal, wow. briquette, and wheat. Wow. So, All interesting energy stuff and then wheat. All energy and then wheat. So if this was in the summer, we'd have a different situation with trying to get the, uh, the uh, world fed. Uh, with uh, the Ukraine being
0: kind of, if, almost, the if I'm not mistaken, there. aren't they exempt from their major exports though? Like having these sanctions against them?
1: Uh, they're exempt from the crude and uh, the petroleum and 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 wheat. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. But if the ports are shut down, yeah, they, it's, they may be exempt from uh, sanctions. They may, but if the ports are shut down to the military operations, um, they still can't get them out of there, right?
0: It's it's been a it's been. <sighs> It's brutal passage for terrific. seafarers, man. I mean they the seafarers cannot catch any break. Even no. In non-war times, the, the ports are locked up and jammed up. Now yeah. they're like imagine being on a boat and having to shelter too, especially with the limited communication you have on that boat. Amen. I agree. It's I agree. Just, I don't know. Unbelievable. I don't, I, it, it, anybody who watches that stuff and cheers on, I'm like, I don't know how you can after seeing some of those videos. You know who I cheer on? I cheer on the bravery of the group of Ukrainian border guards who are yeah, stationed on Snake, Snake Island in the Black Sea south of Odessa when a Russian warship ordered them to surrender under threat of attack. You know what they said to that Russian warship over the radio? I do. Should we say it, we say it together? Yeah, let's do it, ready? Russian Shouldn't warship worship, go, go fuck, fuck yourself. yourself. I guarantee you say that out loud today you'll feel better. Yeah, you definitely will. Those gentlemen they held their ground and all 13 were killed. God. I, and, yeah. and look, and it's not a, it's look, it's not look a great thing, thing that anyone like got got killed here for their bravery, but at least they were able to choose not to go to that POW camp, and they, and they told someone who was attacking their country. And this is the big difference between the Russians and the Ukrainians. The Russians are being ordered to do this. They're being yes, ordered they're to being do forced this to, to take take go do this. this land. And they're coming into a country of people who love their nation, That's who right. are protecting their homeland, who are protecting their kids, who have just been ripped from their kids.
1: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely atrocious. I just wonder how long it's going to take for these soldiers that are attacking to go, you know what, this just isn't worth it, man. <sighs>
0: I, yeah, I hope that happens. Behind them? Oh, yeah, that's true. I, I would hope so. Yeah. yeah the other God. thing that's going on, and it, it's lost a lot of attention because <laughs> of this issue going on in the world, is the People's Convoy, yeah. which departed earlier this week. That was it. We, we talked about that before. That's been a confusing story because there's been multiple convoys, um, and it's done what a lot of American protests end up happening is they splinter off the leaders stop agreeing with each other um i remember brian brace from the people's convoy he really wanted to keep this on mandates there's yeah, been other groups. i've seen influencers online from like the three percent stuff who are trying to jump into this ultimately they say i mean if they're being honest here they're just driving down there they're not going to cause a huge issue they're not coming for the state of the union yeah that's fine but at the same time the reason why kenda worked right is because you're able to get a lot of moderate support. You're able to see people on the sidelines who said, you know what, I don't really like these mandates either. Yeah. Right now, I don't think you're going to get that support from the public rolling in during the middle of a war with these challenges. Uh, yesterday, the federal restrictions on, yeah, well, on masks yeah. were just lowered.
1: The mandates are being rolled back, et cetera.
0: Yeah. There might, all I'm saying is there might be a better time to do this. I completely support anyone's peaceful right to to protest or Absolutely. Or, or, or convoy and get that message out there, but...
1: Yeah, absolutely. You no, the you're whole right. Whole the, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, preparation met with opportunity equals luck. And right now it's, it doesn't seem like it might not be the right time.
0: It might not. It might not. Hey, on Monday, we have Amy Daniel. She's a co-founder and CEO at Windward on the show, and it's gonna be really exciting. They do maritime data predictions and analytics, and I think that we could all use some of that right now. And it'll be really interesting to talk to them about how they factor in wartime events like this into their uh, predictive uh, modeling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a great discussion.
0: Hey, Keyboard Cat, you going to play us out? Uh, Lodge, <laughs> Lo- Logix John Calloway is uh, going to come. It's coming soon. I guess my wand is broken. John Calloway will be on. He's going to talk about some ice cream logistics as well. We have a couple other special guests. Uh, find me on Twitter, at Timothy Dooner. You can find him, um, at Vincent the Dude.
2: Hey, man. Come out to Hey, peace and love. Spread it everywhere, man. We need it.